Cool. Welcome back to the Through the Window podcast. You're joined with co-host Dan and Ben, and today we have a very special guest from Sandstorm Films, Mr. Tom Ward. Uh, Tom, for the uninitiated or the people who don't know who you are, who listen to our podcast, can you give me a brief description of yourself? I would actually hope that's probably all of your listeners. Um, so, uh, I founded a company called Sandstorm Films in, well, like properly in 2001. And I uh, sort of run it. I say sort of because I don't really get that involved in it these days. But essentially, I make films. Simple as that, I would say. So what do you do then? Who? So if you're not running it, what's your kind of day-to-day well, involvement? I think the, the, the thing about Sandstorm is Sandstorm's got quite big now. So it's a film production company. It's been going for 21 years properly. It's something I came up with when I was a kid. It's got bigger and bigger. It's kind of grown in regard to the team size and to the type of work we do and the facilities have got bigger. And I think there's a limit to how much one person can do. Mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of say it's not really me that runs it because it isn't really. I think, you know, I'm, I've had to sort of specialise in a part of our business, a part of the, the work that we do, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, and I think the reality of any successful business is you have to have a team you have to have a team you trust you have to have a team you can have some fun with um and you have to allow people to just get on and do their job mm-hmm. you know and there's so many people i've met through time who kind of go oh what do they say they kind of go oh what's it like to have made it yeah i get this all the time what's it like to have made it and by the way i've definitely not made it yeah in any way but interestingly when i see the difference between me and them it's always the trust factor so you get people going I haven't made it, I haven't managed to get a team, and so on and so forth. And you say, well, actually, how many people have you worked with, how many people have you employed? And you find they've normally got quite a list of people they've employed who they just haven't gone with, and then it's kind of fallen by the wayside. And so I suppose, if you kind of look at it, that's A, the reason that I don't really run my business anymore, and B, why I would say, I, although I haven't made it, I suppose I've been more successful than some in our industry because I've allowed other people to... To it for me. Built a good team. Built a good team, yeah, you know. And the thing about a good team is that there's not one place you can go to build a good team either. So we've got guys who we've literally trained up from kids. We've got people who've had completely different careers and come to us later on. We've had people who've come out of university who are, you know, quite clued up but fundamentally still need retraining. But the the one thing I think that makes certainly a sandstorm team player is this ability to hybrid right i think that's super important which is essentially you can give somebody a job but the people who succeed for me are people who are able to kind of flex see problems and fix stuff and like we do um really interestingly actually we do um it's probably a good thing and i'd recommend it to anybody else we have a bonus structure at work which is measured on lots of different um, categories, but one of the biggest impact categories is going above and beyond. So there's no specific way in which anyone can do that, but the whole team is enabled to basically come back to you and say, this person's gone above and beyond doing this. And you always find it's the people who are the most flexible, yeah, who who do the best in that part of the bonus scheme. Um, so yeah, going back to what we were talking about, you know, Sandstorm Films essentially it's a team effort. Some people describe it a bit as a family. 
I mean, I don't know if what I wouldn't describe it as a family entirely. I think it's more that we all get along really well. Mm-hmm. You know. I guess you could say you're a bit of a family during COVID, right? Didn't you all move in together? Oh, big time. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, so we <laughs> that was completely surreal. And actually, like looking back on it, probably last year for me as a human being rather than as a business owner, it was probably the best year of my life. Wow. Mm-hmm. Business wise absolute disaster like financial complete disaster last year but we really went all out and i you know i don't regret that at all and by all out we you know boris johnson makes his announcement everyone works from home i look at our order book and we're so busy at this point i just think well there's absolutely no way we can work from home so i basically i messaged the whole team and i said look i think we need to split everybody up so post-production can definitely be done at home so there's no need for you guys to come in. Production cannot be done. There is no way of turning that camera on from the house. Yeah. Uh, everything that we stand for as a business is based around studios or big location productions. It doesn't make any sense. We can't be at home. So I think we all need to move into the studio. And I was kind of expecting everybody to say, absolutely not. But I got totally a, such a different response. And everybody was really, really keen on it. So we've got quite a few buildings on our site. So we basically agreed to split the different parts of production up so like the set building guys who were kind of coming in earlier right into the production process stayed in one building and then production stayed in another building and that meant that we could very very safely without breaking any rules shoot our films so that's the first bit of it the 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 reality however was that we shot some films they went really really well it was incredibly tiring it's so tiring because you don't have a big enough team so that was the first thing. And then the the other reality was that work just started getting cancelled left, right and centre. I don't know what it was like for you guys. Yeah, yeah. But Same. Yeah. Within, I think it was about two or three weeks, we'd had 29 productions cancelled, which for wow. us was about, it was about 600,000 disappeared, just gone. And we still had a few productions, so we stayed, we kept doing those, um, but it got quieter and quieter. And this was, you know, while I was saying from a business point of view, last year was a complete disaster because I really strongly believed, and I was wrong, I was strongly believed that the lockdown would last for about 8 to 12 weeks. I I did too, to be Mm. fair. Yeah, yeah. So I banked everything on that. And so every time a job kind of went, I just thought, do you know what, guys, don't worry about it. We'll be back soon. It'll be great. And we started on weekends shooting a set of update films. Essentially, they kind of kicked off like week one and week two was really just us sort of really it was promotion like old school promotion and by old school i mean you know they were really kind of corporate messages it was like this is what we've been doing this week blah 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 and it wasn't what we wanted to do with it it just seemed like the right thing to do keep clients updated and then i think maybe week three we just sort of put a couple of jokes in and suddenly the viewing went up and mm-hmm. people would start phoning up and going, oh, I really like what you did with blah, blah, blah. And I, Okay, fine. So let's start experimenting. So as the paid work went down, it gave us more time to do these films. So I think week five, we decided to get a script that we'd written a couple of years before and never had time to shoot. And it was about our um, camera robots. So we're... Yeah, quite well known in the industry for for being like kind of top of the game for motion control robots and we're the only production company in the UK with a thing called the Techno Dolly and Techno Dolly is really really clever bit of kit because it's a it's a repeatable camera crane 
And what that basically means is normal motion control, you program on a computer, it's kind of a one-man job. The rest of the crew sort of stand around a bit bored. Techno Dolly, everybody gets involved as if it were a camera crane, but then when you've got a shot, you press play and it will repeat it. Mm-hmm. Like all of it. It's mind-blowing. It's very, very cool. So we'd written a script, which was the Techno Dolly versus a traditional motion control, which we had. I can't remember what we called it. I think it was like week five, welcome the Cyclops or something. A Cyclops is our other motion control. And we shot that film and just suddenly realized, oh, you can shoot a promotional film, which isn't really direct promotion. It's just just us having loads of fun. And obviously, people enjoy it more. How much VFX was put into that? Because didn't you have lasers and all sorts going on? Yeah, we had lasers, actually. So we rationed ourselves at that point. We rationed ourselves to one day a week to work on those. Because wow. we were still doing other work at that mm-hmm. point. Not a huge amount, but enough to keep us busy. And it, what we tried to do was basically do normal work, um, Monday to Friday, Saturday was our lockdown day and Sunday was the day of rest, uh, which for most of us in the UK, because the weather was good, was drinking beer, sitting in the garden. And so the, the lasers were done that night. All right. I mean, the whole thing's mental. Like, I think you've met Cam Smith. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Cam Smith works for me. And he basically is behind the camera doing everything. So I, I pre-set up an auto queue and the auto queue is timed. And then we timed the robots to the auto queue, so we knew if we set them all off at certain times, they basically do everything by themselves. Um, so set those all off. So he'd have to set, you know, auto queue, cyclops, techno dolly, and then by the by the time we've kind of got halfway through it, he's over by the lighting desk ready to press the lasers. Wow! And then laser, who is Fraser Hopkins, who's a guy in our VFX team, who was also at the studio. Um, loaded it all in and we had a beer in the evening and we did the lasers and I think we finished it like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night put some music on it and we were very, very pleased with ourselves um, because it was just it was much more organic actually and it's so, I think that's what's been so interesting doing the lockdown series that we kind of did last year and lockdown in general for me was that you suddenly realise that your audience and not just my audience I mean all of our audiences actually just like their films to be good mm. and I know it sounds ridiculous but what I mean by good is that there's kind of been a bit of a history over certainly over the time I've been making films where clients make films that they think their customers want and often when you then ask their customers their customers don't want it at all they just want something that's really well shot really interesting really good fun and we suddenly found ourselves in that boat of going, actually, people would much rather we were just making films that they enjoyed. And interestingly, I think that, you know, moving on from lockdown and not just for Sandstorm, but I includes, you know, Netflix, Disney Plus and everybody else. Everybody's come out of last year with a really firm knowledge of what their customers actually like and consume and enjoy and will share. Um, and I think that that is one of the most interesting and I think uplifting parts of last year for us is, you know if you look at the films that are coming out now a lot of them are absolutely fantastic and you know people want to watch them um, and certainly I, you know the scripts that we see now it's very very rare that we see a script from a client where you go oh no that, that's not a good idea don't do that mm-hmm. you know you've seen really yeah. cool stuff like we shot a really amazing film uh, Thursday Friday last week Um for a brand who would never normally do that kind of thing and it was so exciting and it's so technically complicated and it looked great 
And you just thought, how refreshing. You know, here we are, um, out of lockdown. Things are kind of going back to normal. They are, aren't they? I think it would be the same for you yeah. guys. But we're now making films that are more interesting. Didn't you work on the, um, was it Sports Direct? Yeah. The Techno Dolly on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, So a... actually that wasn't Techno Dolly. That was, um, that was our big crane, which is oh, called right. a ST50 Plus. So ST50 Plus is the Super Techno crane. It's the kind of, the original Super Techno crane was a 50-foot crane with motors in it that would allow you to extend the telescope. Yeah. This is a version of that which is, is basically the same, but it's memorised. So parts of it are a bit like the Techno Dolly. All right. How when you say it's big, how big? It's fifty foot. Fifty foot. So it would do fifty foot of reach. Wow. So because the, the whole concept of the advert was it's constantly moving forward, wasn't it? That's exactly it. Yeah. So they Yeah, Sports Direct was through a really cool production company that we love working with in London called Pulse Films. And they've realised that Techno Dolly is a really nice way to make films. So they booked Techno Dolly on Sports Direct. And then when we started talking to the DOP and the uh, lead grip, lead grip's a guy called Johnny Don, who's in commercials world, is very well uh, renowned. And he said, oh, you know, I just think too many of these shots, I need to get, you know, a longer crane, like a Scorpio 45, so that's a 45-foot crane, or a Super Techno 50. And I said, well, Johnny, we've got a Super Techno 50. So we then, okay, cool. So we're going to have the Technoly and the Super Techno 50 on Sports Direct. And then... We just started measuring all the shots. You know, is that boring? I mean, that is what we do. With, you know, just take the lens uh, apps on your phone and you sort of, sort of work out from here to there. That's going to be like 28 foot or whatever. And after a while, we looked through the shot list and there wasn't really anything left on it for Technodoly. It was all Super Techno 50. Wow. So what the 50 does that a normal crane doesn't is that because it's programmable, you can do these 50 foot charges but have a stop, safe stop at each end. So you know it's going to, you know, stop an inch from... A glass window or a person or something. Yeah. And also, if you watch really carefully on Sports Direct, there's probably only a couple of shots that we didn't do on the crane where they've done the zoom in post, and you can really see it, like the difference Notice it made it. to charge through all these shots. It's seven days of production for a 60-second commercial. Wow. Because it was fully, I guess the pre-production on that must have been pretty insane as well, because you had a lot of talent on there. There's loads of talent. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really deal with that side of things no. on that production, so Pulse did all of that. We we kind of we just come in as a kind of crane specialist, really. Yeah. Because that's kind of the thing I was saying to you earlier. You know, mm. about I can't really run Sandstorm myself anymore. It's because I do spend most of my time doing crane work. And do you find that Sandstorm gets contra- contracted out? Like you've got you know the techno dolly side, and that's something that a lot of production companies they just want a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got a. I, let's call it a strap line. I don't know if it is, but we were trying to work out how do you summarise Sandstorm in the easiest possible way, and it's studios, kit, crew, post. Yeah. Sounds really dull, but it does sum us up. And the studios is really is looked after by Jen, really, and Cam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kit equipment side of it is really, when you boil it down, is Techno Dolly and ST50 Plus, like the primary ones. We've got like Ari Alexas, we've got a lot of lenses, we've got some really, really cool like lighting kit. But that's the kind of same stuff as you could get from a lot of other mm. higher houses, whereas the cranes is the, the bit that really takes us in a different direction. And then the crew, obviously, we've got a very, very good crew. Really cool in-house crew, which I think being based out here near Swindon, it's quite difficult to get good crew out here. I'm sure you guys have found the same. You know, there's some good guys in Bristol now. There's some really good guys in London, but they're all busy. 
Yeah. Um, so most of our crew or most of our shoots are in-house. You said that um, with Sandstorm it was an idea when you were six or seven. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't know if we discussed that. might have been before we turned the uh, um, mics on, actually. So Sandstorm, the name and the idea was something I came up with when I was um, seven years old. I started doing a little sketch animation with my friend um, Sohel. So I grew up on the sort of north side of London and it's quite... um, quite an Asian area and so by Asian area I mean you know there was, there was it's a very nice cultural mix which actually interests you don't I haven't seen as much when you come out to the West Country you don't see as much as we did then and Sohel and I seven years old sketching away in breaks and lunchtime at school and then after school we started building up this this film and it was based around um, the River Nile and Sahara Desert and things like that um, and we we started looking at ways of getting it animated, which turns out is really complicated. You wouldn't know that when you're seven, would you? No. Um, and uh, we found a way of doing it. We got a little community video grant, and we went into a little animation house to capture the frames. But we realised this is genuinely true. Like on the first day of going up there to talk about it, we said, "Oh, we haven't actually got a name. Like, there's no name. It's just a load of sketches." And we were trying to work out a kind of cool name that would then summarise what the film was, and Sandstorm was it. And then the logo that we've got now, which is a sort of rectangle with a curve through the middle, was originally a window looking out onto a desert from that film. And we kept that. And I shot a lot of films as a teenager, sort of short films. Pretty much ditched animation, because animation was so time-consuming, so slow. Um, And unfortunately, I just didn't have the concentration span and I just kept the name and then I went to work in London when I was 16 and it just it felt very natural after working with a few different production companies and a few different advertising agencies that Sandstorm actually felt like it had a viable route and 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 by viable route I think that I mean that I was surprised when I got into the industry properly how much money people spent on their productions and I felt that I felt really strongly that actually we could probably come in and just make really nice ads but for not that much money Mm. and I still stand by that now I still think that's true you know the amount of quotes we send out to clients where they phone back and go it's too low so um and so there you go, you know, 21 years, I've still not got the quote, quoting side of it right. <laughs> but what you're saying, yeah, you know, it's a name I had when I was seven. It's an ethos that I've kind of always had. I think fundamentally I really, really like making good films for people because I like making films. So the the, the year you start Sandstorm as a company. Yeah, properly or as a kid. <laughs> properly, properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the, what does that year look like? What are you what are you going through? Are you Are you in a job that you're kind of... That's a brilliant question. I love that. So um, I was I was working at an agency in London, um, working hours that I didn't think were possible. They were, they were a really really nice team there, but unfortunately it was very sales driven. So it was very much like here's another job, here's another job, and it kept going and it kept going, and it, it was absolutely relentless. And I think the nicest way of putting it was I just kind of felt like we could have been spending more 
on our business's development or their business, sorry. But they're part of a big ad agency network, and so it was all about revenue. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just finding it exceptionally difficult to see that we were producing good work. And they, they get, for me, certainly got to a point where I just thought, actually, I'd rather make films I'm proud of. Um, and I was starting to get quite a few contacts in the industry, working in Soho, um, started talking to a few people, very, very, very quickly found um, people who'd give us investment money, people who'd support us from a production side of it. Because again, you know, I was keen to be making films, not really organising them. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't have been able to organise them. I was only sort of 18 or 19 at the time. So what happened was that, yeah, you've got this kind of like overworked attitude and then suddenly all these people around me going, here's some money, here's some jobs. You thought, well, okay, great, let's give it a go. And fundamentally, the thing that worked then, which still works now, is that you put in lots and lots of time, lots and lots of effort, and you don't stop until you make something you're really pleased with. And... Um, we did that then and we do it now and that allowed us to to grow and it's I think you know as I said I'm not really a business manager mm-hmm. I like making films mm-hmm. um, so as long as I like making films and I'm making films for the right people with the right ideas I'm very happy so what sort of stuff were you making then when you first started out I mean well, what, what cameras were you running around with okay so the cameras was very interesting so any of the sort of bigger commercials or feature work that I was on would have been sort of standard 35mm film. Uh, if it was our own little productions, it could be anything down to a sort of... Have you ever heard of a digibeater? No. Probably not. That's probably before your times because you're so youthful. Um, <laughs> digibeater was basically like the broadcast digital standard from the 90s. Videotape-based. Uh, standard definition, so it's like a quarter of HD, roughly. So, you know... Amazing. Amazing, yeah. And if we had a little bit of budget, you might put film lenses, like prime lenses, on the front of the DigiBeta. So that was the kind of, you know, that was the low end, and then the high end was, yeah, 35mm. Did you own the kit? or Absolutely not. So No, when, no, no. When you started, so, you were renting everything. Well, then. no. So I was very fortunate that our first investor was a company who sold flame systems so this might not mean anything to you but <laughs> flame yeah it's not as interesting as it sounds well no maybe it is maybe it is so the whole of the post-production industry visual effects wise in the 90s you had avid yeah for your edit suite and then you either had a quantel or a flame for your visual effects and you're talking about computers that were 250,000 yeah crazy crazy amounts of money price yeah that's the entry level price like wow. 250,000 so we'd never have afforded it um, but we found a company who resold the, the kit and I said well I can use the flame why don't I train people on the flame you give me access to one of the machines so post production kit wise we had quite a lot of stuff I, I say owned it was sort of slowly paid off over many years um, but camera wise we didn't own anything lights wise we didn't own anything it was always hired um, and the reason that Sandstorm has bought so much stuff over the years and invested so heavily in equipment is because I, I don't really like relying on other people. Mm. Um, and by other people, I don't mean like my team. I know I can rely on them, but it's more 
you know, there's nothing worse than calling the same company over and over again for the same bit of kit, and then some weeks they've got it, some weeks they haven't. Mm. You know, oh, you know, it's going to be on a job in Manchester the day before, so we're going to have to get all these so many complicating factors. And and I really, really like, really like. It's like one of the most important bits of business for me. I like the fact that we can say yes or no to a job pretty much instantly. Because I don't know how much you guys have been involved in it, but there's a lot of businesses and um, and freelancers in in our industry who you kind of phone up and say, oh, can you do blah 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 job? And oh yeah, I'll let you know. And you think, why don't why don't you know? <laughs> it doesn't mm. make you know, are you free or not? It's one or the other to me. Whereas actually, a lot of people, of course, they're a bit more picky about. Oh, I don't know if I want to do it on that day or if I want to do it, you know something else. And I felt really just so important as part of Sandstorm to be able to know yes or no. So that's why I invested in Kit. So yeah, in two thousand and one, we were hiring everything. Um, was it just you when you started as well, or? Well, it was just me on a creative level, yeah. and we had a producer, and we had the investor who also supplies with quite a lot of work. Um, but then we had a quite a big freelance community that I already knew, mm. and if we were working on the feature stuff, I'd only just be part of the crew. Might get to do a bit of the post. Um, if it was commercials, again, I was generally just I'd classify myself as one of the crew, and then our projects started off as smaller stuff as a lot of corporate videos that kind of thing uh, which you guys probably know all about and I like you know it sounds silly I really love a corporate video I really enjoy that kind of energy you get from meeting well because the clients in the corporate world are, are very very different you know film mm. film clients have a way of making films that they know works and there's a set of rules and there's a set of regulations and there's you just focus on that for however many hours you need to make it happen. I think I was saying to you guys earlier, you can't rush creativity. Creativity doesn't have a time frame. You just you work until it gets done. Whereas in the corporate video world, you're often involved with clients or companies that work within very small windows of time. The people are available for very small windows of time again. And the structure is... Um, it's not as creative, but it's quite rewarding, you know. And so a lot of our early stuff was, you know, corporate work. And I think we've still got a few corporate clients now, but I don't personally ever deal with them. Mm. Um, How did you move? Um, you said you obviously had you had a lot of corporate work back then, and obviously it's moved more into advertisement now. Mm. What was the what was the shift there, or was it just time? It's time, yes, yeah, just time. So. You will find you guys will have the same that it's it's not it's not what you know it is who you know mm-hmm. and so in my instance where I didn't really know that many people and my family aren't from a film background it just takes time to build up that community and so you simply get to a point where it's as a mixture of things the 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 priority is first come first serve so whoever books is first should win I don't ever take on a job and then go and get you know what got a much cooler job now i'm gonna go with that because that's not i think that's morally not the way to do things it's not how you run a business it's either. Not, no it's not you're right um but fundamentally we just found that the features the commercials booked us far in advance of the corporate stuff mm-hmm. i don't know what it's like now the same is it yeah. i find it rare that a corporate will book stuff more than four weeks out five weeks out you and see. the clients who do you praise them yeah. You know, you're like, thank you. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And actually, if you can get those clients, um, 
you know that's the way to go really interestingly and i've always i've always said this to smaller companies starting is you should try it sounds easier than, <laughs> sounds easy try and pick your clients yeah and and by that i think that your quality of life is a lot more important than revenue i know that sounds silly and a lot of people who go probably on this you know listening to this will be thinking what i'm not you know i don't really care about revenue i care about making films i enjoy and i care about quality of life for me and my team mm -hmm. and so if you've got a client who always phones you up at midnight or sends you 12 emails and follows it up with 12 phone calls you know before you've even had a chance to reply is it the client you want to be working with might be some people love that kind of thing mm -hmm. i don't um so you just start picking that side of things and, and again it doesn't mean that if they book you you still go and do the work but if they're the person who always phones you up with a day to go the chances of us being free are basically zero um and so over time you just find that naturally the more organized clients book you in advance yeah um doesn't mean doesn't mean we're not you know i've got a job i'm doing on friday this week where we've just had confirmation but we've known about the job for six or seven weeks but they're like, oh, it might move, it might, you know, and that, that kind of thing's a reality, isn't it? But you will just find yourself falling into this situation where people with a bit more organisation will, uh, I was going to say prop you up, prop you up to run. You'll latch on to them more, though, won't you? You'll latch on to yeah. them, and I just think you build a better relationship, don't you, really? Yeah. When yeah. you've all got that kind of understanding of how each other works, and, and there's, there's got to be a mutual respect as well. You know, filmmaking is quite tough and mm. you know what it's like behind the scenes when you finished a finished a shoot you know they, they don't really consider the time it takes to prep all the kit move it there set it up yeah. pre-production shoot it pack it down take it back start the edits get everything delivered it's it's time intensive i don't think i i don't think i charged for pre-production for the first three years i yeah, didn't but why i didn't, would you? I didn't you think about to, it what you wouldn't know how to charge and the the interesting thing as you go along is you just have to start writing down everything that is taking you time and yeah. pre-production should be taking you loads of time because if you do pre-production well the production's simple mm. so simple yeah most of the best productions i've been on we kind of got the whole production done before we start using the camera um so yeah pre-production is key how you charge for pre-production i suppose is quite complicated when you're starting out because people again aren't it's not something they can see so yeah difficult to understand how did you find it when you were starting out to find your worth or like to actually put a price to something because that some, that's something that yeah. we struggle with for well years. actually i don't think you can and you can have two clients who pay you two totally different amounts of money yeah uh one thing i would say which i think is very interesting is unless you're um if you're a successful director of photography producer director so senior rank heads of department unless you're at that level actually even 20 years on you probably won't be getting paid any more per day you just find yourself busier um and finding out your value is really tough because you again in the corporate world you will find they'll actually pay you a lot more than they'll pay you in feature films yeah um or advertising you know because features and advertising have a kind of guide rate card for what they will pay for mm -hmm. people corporates don't really have that so you could you can find yourself in this sort of false sense of security you're going huh i just got 900 pounds a day but you couldn't charge pre-production and you couldn't charge a travel and you, yeah all those meetings that you're in and what have you um i'm not saying that's 
a hard and fast rule, but you, it is surprising. And actually, for Sandstorm, there's very few roles that Sandstorm uh, have that we hire out to our clients that are above £500 a day. But it's just a lot of them, and they're yeah. in use every day. So with Sandstorm now, you've got the free studios. Yeah. Um, when you first opened that unit you have... Did you just have the one studio at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was we, that like? Okay, well, let's. I'll work it backwards for you, which was that we were in London. The Science Museum were a client. The Science Museum have an airfield uh, near Rawton, mm-hmm. near Swindon. Absolutely beautiful airfield, really, really lovely. And they had a couple of hangars there in the sort of early noughties, so a couple of years into our sort of business being established. And, yeah, essentially they'd managed to get themselves... a a creative grant to set up something called, I think it was called Creative Planet. And the idea was to bring in lots of production companies into one hub. And it made perfect sense to me. Uh, so we got involved with that. And that was why we ended up out this way. So we were London-based almost entirely. And I'm not even from this area, but I have to say it's an amazing area. I love I love it around here. Um, the countryside around here especially is just mm. incredible. And we basically moved our production up to these hangars on this airfield and it was fine but you know they're old world war ii hangars they're not in the best of shape and there was a lot of work that was needed not just by us but but also by the science museum to keep them in good nick and so the amount of money they were having to plow into that um it started to make it quite difficult for us to guarantee to be able to make films every day of the week so i spoke to other local business owners in this area and one of them who I knew quite well they were um, farmers and they were just closing down their dairy farm so they had a bunch of quite beaten up old buildings but much smaller than a hangar so yeah. therefore much much cheaper to renovate um, they were focused on a couple of the buildings on site and there were a couple of barns so we couldn't really afford a whole barn um, <laughs> No, you know, but the thing is, you've got to keep in mind, like, I don't know what the rent's like these days, but this was about 2006, 2007. The kind of rent they were looking for for a, for a barn was about five or 6,000 a year. Wow. Yeah, and then you're going, well, actually, if I'm, I've suddenly got all this money, therefore, available, because keep in mind, like, in London, you're sort of 80,000 a year for very small space. And that's back then. With no parking. Yeah. You know, everything else. So... It was so cheap. So you instantly kind of went, well, actually, we can then redevelop these barns. Um, so we did. And we had one stage, which was Studio One, which I think you guys had been in before. Yep. And we built, it was me and a couple of friends building it sort of evenings and weekends. Um, so you, you built the cove and stuff yourself? The cove I built myself. The Wood? Yes, yeah, wood. Yeah, yeah, it's made of wood. It's... Um, it's a really interesting story actually because it all moved very very quickly we had a job coming up for one of our big clients and it was to shoot 30 or 40 toy commercials back to back and we'd done this in these hangars before and it was a cinch the place is massive really the only problem you had in a hangar when you're shooting toy commercials was keeping it warm because mm. it was so cold and suddenly the scientists said look we're going to have to shut off that hangar for a bit and do some repairs so there was nowhere really for us to film so we had six weeks to build Studio One and to build our edit suites. Yep, seen that. Yeah. And six in six weeks, myself and then about six other guys, seven other guys, built Studio One. Studio One was easy, actually. That's quite a simple building. A cove isn't that 
difficult really. It's plast they're plasterboarded walls, so wooden frame, plasterboarded walls. The cove was made. I cut a load of um, pizza slices. Sort of, yeah. I mean, basically, just cut a load of um, moulds to sit against the back, and then I got a, a type of ply board you can get, which is ridged on one side, so, so it's foldable. This should we have? Yeah. There you go. Perfect. And then we just pushed it together, and then I got a guy to come in and skim over the top of it. Yeah. And that was it. It looks the exact same as we did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who built it was racking his brain, thinking, I hope this is the right way to do it, and we didn't know. So you saying that fills me with... It's reassuring. Mm. Happiness, yeah. yeah. Long-awaited happiness, yeah. Well, there's a lot... I mean, the thing about a cove is, fundamentally, if you look at it and you light it in a certain way, it should become infinite. If it does that, it's doing the job. So yeah. it doesn't matter how you made it. Yeah. The only bit you've got to worry about, and I found this out many times, especially filming toy commercials with children, they love running up in it. Mm. <laughs> and like sitting on the corners. Oh, they love it. They love it. So you will have to keep an eye on that. Um, and we ended up fiberglassing ours in the end. Wow. Over the top of it, which worked really, really well. Um, the other thing to keep in mind as well, for all you cove lovers out there, is do not paint your cove with gloss paint. When any client comes up to you and says, I need gloss on your cove, say no. You've been, people have asked you for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, somebody actually painted our cove with gloss, which of course meant we had to then pull all the paint back off. <sighs> wow. Because nothing would ever stick to it again. Um, and of course, as you point out to people, if you're going to paint it with gloss, when I light it, it's just going to reflect back mm, at you. Yeah. <laughs> they don't get it. Um, luckily, that hasn't happened too many times, but when it has happened, the repair bill is quite substantial yeah I bet I bet um, anyway so that was our one studio that was 2008 and we had the edit suites and we built the building in such a rush that we hadn't even got a front door on the building when we started shooting our first ads so I left a breeze block wall exposed and I just very crudely spray painted on <laughs> door coming soon <laughs> something like that um, because, yeah, the, the turnaround was so fast. Yeah. yeah. Which is why if you come to Sandstorm and you go into the old building, there's no windows. Because you don't have time to put it Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Cool. That makes complete sense. You know, just nice and simple. Just put up a load of plasterboard walls. Done. Um, so we had that. And then we took on Studio 2 uh, a couple of years later, simply because we just didn't have time to keep repainting Studio 1. Really? We were constantly painting it. What were you painting? What painting? Just white? Or well, just... the thing was, like, we were working with quite a lot of quite high-end DOPs for example most DOPs do not like white white is too reflective so they want everything black all the time so a lot of the time we were shooting into the coat they just say can you just paint it black really so you'd often end up you know painting it black or you'd have stylized shoots that wanted it sort of you know dark blue or something and then trying to get that back to white each time it's an absolute nightmare did you paint it yourself or did you bring oh yeah I was always painting it yeah I was always painting it there were so many occasions just sort of gone midnight and luckily I lived quite close by where you'd be doing the last coat of painting. I really hope that looks good in the morning. <laughs> you know, and you, there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way it went. And so we just simply looked at it and thought, actually, we've got enough money to get that other space now. We're not in a super rush for it. So unlike the six weeks we took to build Studio One, we took six months to build Studio Two. Well, okay. Um, did it much, properly? Much slower. Did it properly? It's a lot bigger, isn't it? Is no, it? it's not. No, 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 no. Studio Two is, is that the through the door one. at the back of Studio That's One? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So. I tried to make a studio that was the polar opposite. So Studio One was really well soundproofed, yeah. but it had a very low ceiling, um, dual infinity cove, not fire retardant. You know, everything in there is basically made of wood. Yeah, Cur big curtains and everything else. 
so Studio 2, we did the opposite, which is made the whole thing concrete floor, fireproof walls, fireproof materials, much higher ceiling, so that we just had these options. So if, if it was going to be a DOP-based job, maybe with special effects, Studio 2, if it was going to be corporate or needed sound to be the main thing, Studio 1. And that's how it went, and it went like that for quite a few years. And it got busier and busier, and we just started to find a lot of the scripts we were sent that we really wanted to work on. Um, they simply were not, basically our stages were not big enough to accommodate those scripts properly. And we kind of blagged it for a few years, because you kind of can, like, especially with room sets and things, mm. there's certain things you can do to make a room set look a lot bigger than it is, so you could fit them into our studios. But fundamentally, we were just looking at so many of these scripts and going, you just can't do that in there. Car stuff especially, you know, the amount of car work, because you need quite straight lenses you don't want to be shooting cars on big wide angle lenses all the time because it distorts how the car looks so you'd you know uh, Top Gear and um, Grand Tour and people like that were often coming along going oh could we shoot something with you and you'd say I'd, I'd absolutely love to do it but I don't think we've got the right space so yeah drew up some plans in well, three years ago I guess and I took the plans to a few architects and said, look, this is roughly what I want to do. Three architects, all of them came back with variations on a theme. None of them wanted to do what I wanted them to do. <laughs> yeah, it was really surreal. You just kind of, it's such a simple build, but the reality was that why would an architect want to do your simple build? They want to do something that's theirs, that yeah. they can show off. But the, the issue for me with that was that it was just very, very expensive. You know, And I wanted to make a studio not an architectural masterpiece from the outside yeah um so i drew the designs myself whilst i was on the train into london and i put them through planning by myself wow good for mm. you good for me uh, maybe i mean <laughs> did it pass first time no uh, right. <laughs> no it didn't so, so what happened was i drew the plans up they were an enlarged version of a cowshed because what I realised from talking to the architects was there's only this in where we are anyway. There's certain places you just can't build, and there's certain things you cannot build. Mm -hmm. The thing that they were most likely to approve was another cowshed. So from the outside, I designed just a standard barn, and then the inside was more intricate. And my first submission got a lovely response, but the, fundamentally, I wasn't an architect, so I hadn't given them enough information, <laughs> and. They came back with a long list of like, what, is, what does this mean? What is that? And so on and so forth. And I spoke to a friend of mine who was an architect, and he said, basically, they're saying your plans look rubbish. And I was like, what do I need to do? And he said, really, you kind of just need to colour them in. <laughs> so I was like, I could do that tonight. Yeah. Come here, Photoshop. And uh, I did literally just colour them in and sent them back, and then they got approved straight away. Really? And there you go. Wow. So to give you an idea, and this is, I think all of you should keep this in mind, is when somebody tells you something is going to cost a certain amount of money, look at all your options first. Um, and do, you, do you remember how much the architects were quoted? Oh, yeah, yeah. 1.2 million was the lowest. 1.2. Just for the architecture fee or the whole no, build? No, no, for the whole build, including their fees, including right. the planning. It was all coming in. 1.2 was the lowest. 1.8 was the highest. And it turns out there's a formula that they use for working out simply based on square footage. Yeah. So they were, And they were not going to budge. And I didn't have 1.2 mil, and I knew we needed to build a barn. So I started pricing it up, and suddenly realized that actually to build a barn is super cheap. Um, and if you've been to Sandstorm, we've got a, a thing there called Director Club. And Director Club is a kind of like very beautiful set of rooms 
for members to use, for shoots to use. That is about about half of the whole cost was that. And the barn itself was incredibly cheap. And to, to give you an idea, like the whole thing whole thing came in under three hundred and fifty thousand. Wow. So a quarter of what you were quoted minimum. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Now obviously if you work my time into it, keep in mind I've had a divorce since then, basically because I was there seven <laughs> days a week. You know, actually, you kind of think to yourself, well, hmm, maybe you should get somebody else to do it. But, um, <laughs> but the thing <laughs> it's, was, it's the money you saved first a divorce. Well, it's... you know, the thing about, hey, without getting too deep and meaningful about it, the divorce thing is a, is a separate thing in that, you know, my mm. wife and I had grown apart and I was committing seven days a week to my job. And I really loved that, you know. Um, was that good for me and my family? No. Was it good for my business? Yes. Uh, can I do it now? Absolutely not. <laughs> I wish I had seven days a week free now. Um, so if you ever need a, another another project like that again in the future, yeah. will, w- would you do the same you did? Or would no, you- I, because I couldn't. I just couldn't do it, unfortunately. Uh, one of the things I came out of last year with was a sense of balance, really. You know, And by balance, I, I do literally mean a work-life balance. Mm. You know? So... I still worked. I still work. What most people would think of as too many hours, but I think is too little. What are your hours? Would you say? Um, so average day is fourteen hours standard, but that's always like I've always done sort of fourteen to seventeen, seventeen plus hours a day. And after a few days, you know, in a row, you just you're not productive. But fourteen is a norm. So I normally start work at five, five thirty in the morning and finish at seven thirty. That's wow. a normal day. That's just work. Do you yes, take time, sleep. personal time, to exercise or? Yeah, like I do as- personal training at five a.m. on a Thursday, and I do. I normally go running maybe on a Monday night, but that's about it. Um, but keep in mind, my my work stuff's quite varied, so I could not sit at a desk for fourteen hours a day. Mm. So, for example, today, really, you know, we were de rigging a shoot in Studio Three, setting up a shoot in Studio Two. I got to do the techno dolly stuff, so I did. Technically de-rig, technically set up, de-rig the crane, prep that for a shoot that I've got on Wednesday. Quite physical, you know, lots of weight movement. You know, the cranes are really heavy, like the, the big 50 cranes, two, 2.4 tonnes. So it's, it's a lot of physical exercise. So that was part of my day. And then I sort of finished that part about 10, 30, 11, uh, a few meetings, lots of emails. Luckily, I don't have to do as many as I used to these um, days. Then started, went back into the studio in the afternoon and then came to see you guys. And that's quite a common day. You know, it's almost a sort of... When you do, when you look back at it, it roughly is a 50-50 balance of desk work and physical work. I read in that um, article we spoke about that you want studios to become more holistic-focused and think yeah. about that side of things so more. So, really, so you're talking about an article that I wrote for British Cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And it was before... Um, is it Helena Hutchins, the DOP who was accidentally shot on set? Yes. Not quite recently. And it was before that, and it was just before the APA, which is the Advertising um, Production Association, um, they basically had put in a, a set of measures to try and reduce the working hours for production. It was just before both of those. But fundamentally, it did seem like production this year has been so full on let's just say hectic really for everybody because you know last year not a lot of stuff happened this year 
a lot of stuff opposite there. yeah and it means everybody's working very 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 long hours normally you know six days a week for most uh, guys on productions and you could just see people burning out and getting tired and you know we'd already set up director club we'd already built the studios with the whole intent the whole point of it was to give people a better work-life balance because you can't change the hours like one of the things i said to you about the creativity thing you cannot change the hours i've, I've tried really hard you know the dream for me would be that if you were on a film shoot it's like eight or nine hours a day and then everyone stops and then they come back the next day. But the reality of that, that never just never happens, never happens. And there's a lot of historical reasons which we can talk about in a bit. Um, but I thought, well, if you can't reduce the hours, you need to find ways of making those hours more fun, and making them a lot safer and making them a lot more productive. And that's why the Director Club Sandstorm stuff happened and where that article came from was because I, I felt very strongly a lot of studios were being put up in the UK, but no one was really addressing the hours the, the sort of well-being of the crews and I think because I'm you know having founded a production company and also working in production on the ground as a crew member you kind of see both sides of it really um, and I've got a really strong opinion one of my favorite sayings I'd never get anyone to do something I wouldn't do myself and so I, I just constantly seeing crews tired and I was tired as well because I was doing the same job I just thought well, let's make it Let's make it, as you said, more holistic. Let's make it a place where, at the end of the day, you can go for a sauna or you can have a really nice meal and a beer. Um, and I'd written that article because it wasn't it wasn't about Sandstorm. It was about, actually, why doesn't the rest of the industry just start doing this? Because it's not going to cost you a lot more money to put those facilities in place, but it would really improve your crew's lives. And Is that for the crew to use after the 14-hour shift still? Well, yeah, but actually, the way I look at it is quite different because a lot of the time, if you're on a 12-hour shoot, there's an awful lot of time when the crews are sat around doing nothing. And that's when they can use the... And they can use it then, you know. So we have these sort of like very short massage therapy sessions that people can use on shoots, and the showers and the sauna stuff are there all the time. So you can very quickly, from a department, say, well, actually, you know, the grip department... Of four people only two of you are in use for the next two hours so you guys go and just chill out for a bit uh, and then come back afterwards actors especially they use it a lot because there will you know certainly many times this year even where actors are, are on standby in the green room for a couple of days you know wow. waiting to go on for a shot so why not go and relax so that was the idea of it and what I was saying about the not so much the Hannah Hutchins thing but I just think there was very much a a lot of people's time was being used up in production in a way mm. that probably was starting to get a bit dangerous I I felt and as I say it was just it just timed up quite well that that article went out and then the APA changed their rules what was that can you go into that yeah so their rules quite simple which is that the way that productions work is that the directors and the generally the producers sometimes even the DOPs certainly in America anyway, are paid a fee per project, not uh, not really per day. I mean, a director fee, let's say, you know, commercial director, eight to £12,000 for a day, but they have to do all their pre-production in that and they have to attend the edit. However, if you go into two days, that fee jumps up catastrophically and most productions can't afford it. So the way they do it is simply go, well, actually, I don't have to pay the director anything more. If he does 10 hours or he does 19 hours, mm. we pay him the same. 
because mm-hmm. it's, still, it's still one day and the crew actually doesn't cost me that much because their overtime is basically a tenth of their day rate so when you add it all up it's much cheaper to just work a really really long day which is lovely if you weren't shooting for six days a week it's, it's kind of set up wrong it's set up wrong yeah exactly the whole thing's back to front so the way um, to fix it then would it be to reduce the day rate of the people at the top I don't know if it's about reducing the day rate. I think it's about the flexibility of it because you've got to understand reality. You've just got to understand reality when you start production. So, for example, right, if we take the techno dolly that we use, really expensive bit of kit, and a lot of people will try and book us quite late into pre-production at a point when they just kind of go, oh, what tool can do this job? Oh, techno dolly. Oh no, I haven't actually got that much money. What do I do? <laughs> Whereas the smart producers simply just kind of go, I used Technodoly once, it was great. I'll put it in my budget right at the beginning. Worst case scenario, I have to just take it out because I don't need it. And then I've got myself this pot of money to use for something else. Mm-hmm. And that's good planning. Um, whereas normally what you get is a lot of people coming to you with a scenario of, I've got a five day shoot, but I've got three days of money. Can we do it? Um, and you guys are going to get this, we will get it. And I don't think that will ever change. My understanding from talking to people who've been in the industry for a very long time is that is how the industry's always been. So, Do you think it will change? No, I don't think so. No, I think that the reality of it will be that crew especially will just start saying no. What will happen then? They'll start having to get realistic, but the... But then they'll also start looking to other countries, for example. You know, it's always been a classic. At the moment, the UK is really busy because of Brexit and the pause in production. So you, you put the two together. Brexit's made the pound really weak. We've got some of the best production crew in the world, possibly the best, um, who are now really affordable. So, of course, you're going to come to the UK, but then you need you know, your six-day weeks and very, very long hours to make the productions. And so you people are going to get tired. So at the moment, a lot of crews have got the luxury of kind of saying, actually, I don't want to do that. Or if I'm going to work Saturday, I want double time or time and a half. Or the project has to be really cool. Or the project has to be really, really cool. But yeah. I think that it gets to a point, you know, we were talking earlier about that Sports Direct project. Mm-hmm. It's a great project, but I don't think anybody on that wanted to be working on a Saturday because they were all tired, you know. Mm. They've been on other projects. Um, do, do you get many um, people on the team say no? I don't think I've ever had anyone in my team say no, but one of the things I have always reminded my team is that there's always another job to work on. So, you know, I was on a feature film last week and it was quite a last minute booking. And the guy I wanted to work with me was booked on holiday. So his solution was, I'll cancel my holiday. And I said, don't do it. There's no point because another cool job will be there next time. Always take your holidays. So do you find that people, the reason people aren't saying no is because of, FOMO, like the fear of not being on the ship. Well, there is a little bit of FOMO, I suppose, because fun, you know, fundamentally the job's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Really, I don't think you do this job unless it was fun, um, because it it is so. In, in, I was to say enduring. You know, it's quite tough, isn't it? There's a lot of energy that needs to go into stuff. No, but I just think you you have to be realistic about about what you put into it, in comparison to what you get out. If you just work seven days a week all the time. And by the way, as I said to you earlier, I'm quite happy doing that. But most people, if you do that, the quality of life outside of work is going to be... Diminishes. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be so bad. What would you um, 
what tips would you give to you know for us like we're we're a growing team yeah like it was started out with just ben and i then we got joss now max and yeah. we're growing into a four but what tips would you give to people who are expanding teams uh in you know building a nice culture within a, a crew because you you've got okay. cam we've worked with cam and he was he well, lived got, sandstorm he's yeah, incredible I mean, we've got 18 staff uh cam i would say is one of our highest performers cam's 25 i remember he came to us before university went to uni came back did a trial day with me and we were doing some photography with a celebrity and he helped me with the lights and everything and he just had a natural um inclination for just how to do stuff so at the end of the shoot i said to him oh, do you want to step in front of the camera we'll just take a shot of you he's kind of why are you taking a shot I said, well you've got a job if you want one and that was his profile pic and there we go and the 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 bit that i would go back to you guys the you have to be in this together you have to want the same things a lot of businesses people go in it for differently some people want money some people like making films some people like editing some people want to make music videos and have no interest in corporate videos and unfortunately if you put all those things together you're going to spend most of your time battling so you want to be in it for the same reasons but i think you also have to be realistic about the finances because making films is quite expensive and you don't always get that money from every client so you have to be quite patient as a team so and, and you know as a good example if there was a team of you and some of you've got a mortgage and a family and others don't you will find a different need to earn simply because you've got overheads to pay and when you get into that it becomes a bit of a melting pot of confusion really because actually like oh this month we've only made four grand or five I don't know I'm making this up and then last month you made 40 and you can't rush in and spend stuff so that's the big thing certainly that and I honestly mean this probably 2015 so if you think about it, we've been here for 14 years when that's probably when we started to earn a balanced income where you could look at the profit and loss sheet every year and kind of go I can see where we're going now mm -hmm. and by the way it wasn't a lot of money like the thing about Sandstorm we don't really make that much money genuinely don't um if you think about the amount of staff facilities overheads overheads are high oh my goodness the great thing is like when we started and we had those overheads we were always comparing ourselves with london and you just kind of go well actually our overheads are minuscule mm. so they're not high and then we went into lockdown last year and you go wow they're really high they're really high we just we almost shot, genuinely, we almost shot a video, one of these lockdown videos, where we just set fire to £50 notes in the video because that would have cost us less money than running a company at that point. Oh, my God. It was so bad. We were just pouring money down the drain last year. Um, and so you kind of, you've got to look at it as a team. Mm -hmm. Some people left Sandstorm last year because they just were you know, the idea of being in it together and losing money, not interested. They were gone. Um, and you come out of it though with the team that all want the same thing mm, yeah. which is what we did at the beginning and when we started in 2001 we wanted the same thing after a few years the investor didn't want the same thing so we bought him out after a few more years the producer wanted a different thing and they'd gone and then the team regrew around that and you'll always you know, human beings always want different things and we'll always grow yeah and we all grow at different speeds and we all change our minds and situations outside of work change who we are but if you're a team together the main thing is to work to, together 
in regard to just keep just having an open discussion like you know do we want another camera do we need it what's it going to bring to us and those kind of things you know you can you can do a lot of the work that we do on something like an Arri Alexa and I, I think our last Alexa was about 65,000 for a camera you can do a load of that on on the Canon over there for two grand in reality so why have an Alexa you know and actually our justification for having the Alexa was consistent quality and knowing that a clients would go on set and go okay they know what they're doing but also we just knew in post and everything else what result we were going to get mm. and that's a marginal gain isn't it but i remember when I it's bought, min maxing though isn't it at that point absolutely and the thing was i remember when we got our first alexis we got two and i was the only person in the company who wanted them everybody else was just like this is a complete waste of money why don't we just like you know let's all buy a house or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Because so it's why, that astronomical, yeah, isn't it? Why not? And the weird thing was, of course, the Alexa then appeared. We were one of the first companies in the UK to have an Alexa, or two. One of them we kept at a rental house in London. The other one we used for our own productions. They two made multiplied by one equals two. Does it? Um, <laughs> no idea why that happened. I don't know. They're obviously confused by the cost of an Alexa. As well. <laughs> um, and the they made their money back so quickly. And they changed the reputation of our business very quickly because suddenly this small production company who a few people knew about, kind of, who are these guys with the Alexas and the you know, really nice lenses and stuff? Oh, they've got their own studios. And that sort of got the ball rolling. So actually, sometimes those sort of high-risk investments pay off. Really pay off. So did you, like, when, when those cameras came in, did you, did you up your prices? Or was it the, the clientele that came in? No, it's just the clientele. You know, because the thing about the Alexa, we bought a couple of Red One cameras before, and I don't know if anyone knows what a Red One is, but um, probably around 2007, 2008, Red began, and they had a camera called the Red One, and it was supposed to be the first sort of digital cinema camera. And ironically, at the same time, Canon brought out the 5D Mark II, which was a stills camera that did video. Now, I promise you, <laughs> it sounds ludicrous, but we bought both of those, and the 5D was much better than the red wow the red causes a lot of problems it rarely worked it was very clunky it was very slow to start up and everything that they claimed that camera did it didn't do and whereas 5d just you know does what it says on the tin just what it says on the tin yeah two two and a half thousand pounds we got rid of our reds because we were so upset with them because they because they just didn't do what they were supposed to do and mm -hmm. i didn't want to risk us looking like idiots so they went and then we became very reliant on the 5D. The problem with the 5D is small. It's very, very easy to shoot a lot of shots in a day. And we did a, we did a production, quite high-end production, and we did 85 setups in a day on a 5D. <laughs> and... Was that your, that was your A camera? This is our A cam. One lenses? Was it just Canon glass as well? We were on two different primes. Okay. We were using old, old vintage primes. And we just went through shot after shot after shot. And to be fair, it was quite a good film. But we got to the end of the day and I said, we've got to get a big camera back because we need to slow production down so that we can start considering the shots. Because the 5D, you just carry it around, don't you? There's no big crew needed to move it. And the light sensitivity was pretty good as well. And Ari had just announced the Alexa. It hadn't come out, but they announced it. And I thought, you know what, it's, it's going to mean so much to Ari at the moment because they really were on their knees. Like, I don't... I, I, pretty sure Harry wouldn't take that offensively but the world was suddenly moving on and Harry didn't really have a solution and everything to me felt like they were 
you know, going to go 100% with Alexa and make it something really special. So we ordered them, and they came well before they were promised to us, which was really cool. And half the functionality on them at that point didn't really work. They were kind of, here's your cameras. In the next couple of months, you'll have this bit, this bit, this bit working. But for now, tuck in. And we did. And it was really, really cool. So from from a 5D to an Arri. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing, you That's know, a headline, isn't it? Well, it is, but it's... But, Aries, what they did with the Alexa was really, really smart. They made the first proper, to me, digital cinema camera. A, a camera that cinematographers would use when, until that point, they would only use 35mm film. Mm. And 35mm film sounds brilliant um, to the modern crew. But if you had to use it, it was a horrible nightmare. Um, it was much, much, much more complicated. And there were so many risks involved in the production process that didn't really need to be there Mm -hmm. and the Alexa got rid of that I found it really interesting that you said that you wanted to bring back a big camera because you were doing too many shots with the 5D so just the sense of having a bigger camera made the quality better before you even shot it's about the composition though so the thing is filmmaking is a team effort there's nothing you can do about it you cannot make big films by yourself you will simply wear yourself out yeah so um, the, the issue we had with the 5D, it's a small camera. It wasn't that easy to feed a decent video pi- picture out of it for clients to look at. So a lot of shots were being essentially rushed. Now, you've got to look at every, if you can, here you go, advice for everybody. Look at every shot on every film you do as possible showreel material. Every single shot. How on earth could you possibly do 84 shots in a day and that be showreel worthy? Yeah? So... That's why you slow production, because if you compare that to the Sports Direct ad or the Aldi Kevin the Carrot ad that we just worked on, we could spend four or five hours on every shot. Mm-hmm. But they look great. You know, and every part of those images is, is refined. When you try and pump, you know, 85 images, shots in a day, I think actually, I hope I'm allowed to swear on this, but I remember the technical term when it got to about seven o'clock at night on that shoot was, let's shoot the fucking shit out of this. <laughs> Yeah, because you were just kind of, we've still got 25 shots to get, and we really are, like, it's only so long before they just close the stage and we're going to have to go home. And we did, we shot the fucking shit out of it, and the client said he really liked the term shooting the fucking shit out of it. Um, And we made a film, but it was definitely that moment where you just went, let's just get a big camera back, but let's get a big camera that works. That isn't 35mm, because most of our clients couldn't really afford it, you know, and so... That was the reality of Soundstorm. It was an, it's an affordable production company. They could afford an Alexa. They couldn't afford 35mm film. Mm. So, yeah, that was that. Um, the term of um, it's not about the body, it's about the glass. Yeah, you know, I mean... Do you agree with that? No, I don't, unfortunately, no. Okay. Because I've had this conversation with so many people over so many years. And, you know, like the red stuff, there's a lot of people who are very, very protective of red. And to be fair, some of the best films I've ever seen shot are shot on red. But I've never shot stuff I've been happy with on red. And obviously there's a limitation to my skill set there, which is, you know, if I use an Alexa, I know what I'm going to get much, much quicker. So the learning curve on red cameras is much higher. The learning curve is much, much higher. You can take it to another level. Sony Venice is like almost every second shoot we're on now is Sony Venice. So it's either basically Alexa Mini, because Alexa Mini NF hasn't really taken off, or Sony Venice. And we spent, on Thursday and Friday, we were shooting on Sony Venice, and we spent two hours trying to configure the camera. 
you know, I'd be lucky to spend two minutes setting up an Alexa. You know, there's just not many options in it. When the Alexas were built, they were built for a film crew who want to just whack a film mag on the back, set the speed and go. And that's, to me, I think that's reassuring. And we had to, with the Venice last week, we had to do all sorts of, you know, colour tests and everything, basically on the shoot, which I don't really want to have to do. You know, we still do them with a Alexa, but not to that level. This might come across as a bit of a shit question, Please. but maybe that's because of my the experience gap between us. Go on. Do you think Alexas are worth the money? Um, actually, probably not. In reality, you can make the same film on a different camera. You just might have to work harder for it. So, so it buys you time. Buys you time. Yeah, it's essentially what an Alexa allows you to do is is be a little bit lazy because you know that it's a very safe camera doesn't really let you down so for all that extra money you're buying a little bit more latitude really nice telemetry like the color inside of alexa is beautiful and you know if you slightly overexpose or slightly underexpose you'll be able to save that in post really easy on an alexa I've done camera tests with so many cameras. Like I remember someone saying to me, like, oh, get a Sony A7S or whatever it is. So I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, oh, it does like 25,000 ISO. It's like, have you ever tried 25,000 ISO? <laughs> have you seen what comes out? Yeah. Snow. It's snow. Yeah. It's a pile of. Anyway, and that's the problem is that a lot of cameras are either promoted by the owners or the manufacturer, and you've got to test them to know. And I did a shoot. Uh, just before lockdown, uh, where the client really wanted these sort of fast-moving tabletop shots. And he'd seen a video on Instagram with a guy using like a GH5 or something, and he was just dragging it around the place. Yeah. And you know what? The results looked incredible. Yeah. So we got a GH5. I got a red, not Komodo, but whatever it was, one of the tiny brains. I had that. And I had a full-size Alexa, which obviously I'm just very used to using. And we did the camera test, and the Alexa absolutely destroyed the other two. And although it's much heavier, and I was sweating and worn out, you couldn't argue with the picture. So I just thought, I'll just stick with the Alexa. Do you think the size of, of these cameras will stay consistently big? No, 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 no. Cameras are getting smaller and smaller, actually. So you know, you... If you think about the Alexa Mini was actually designed as a drone camera. They didn't have any really? intent- yeah, no right. intention of people using it, which is why if you've ever tried to use one, all the ports and stuff on it are horrendous. They're so difficult to use. Because they didn't imagine anyone was going to have to use them. Mm. They imagined you just plug it in, take all the cable stuff off it, and let it fly up into the sky. People do like lightweight cameras. There's no denying it. But, I mean, it's a shame I haven't got my phone on me, but most Alexa Mini jobs that we work on, by the time you put all the accessories on, they are no smaller than a normal Alexa. They are. They can be ginormous. It's got to build them out, yeah. I did a shoot with a long zoom lens on it recently on the Techno Dolly. And by the time we finished setting it up, it was almost a metre long. Oh my God. Wow. So, you know, what is an Alexa Mini buying you there? We, was it the DOP's preference to have the Alexa Mini over the Alexa? And... Yeah. Yeah, we just, it's very much the standard now. Yeah. And the old Alexas, you know, we've still got some Alexa classics, which, um, and this is not supposed to be a sales point, we've still got them and we still rent them for a price that's lower than you can get like an A7S because we want people to be able to use them mm-hmm. and enjoy them and realise that actually you can make really good films on the classics still. Um, they're great cameras, but most people wouldn't use them on a professional set now. You know, So Mini is pretty much the sort of... Yeah. I'd be surprised if I don't go on a feature and it's, a, it's a, something that isn't a Mini. We've got a, um, a Synology NAS, 
like a, yeah. uh, a cloud storage, but yeah, local. Awesome. Yeah. Um, it's something we invested in a few years ago, um, just from recommended from a friend, and we've realized how invaluable that piece of kit has yeah. become. Yeah. Um, a question for you is, what is what are other things within film that film companies or production companies don't invest in, which is arguably as important as the cameras itself? Oh, right. Oh, more, probably more important, backup. Backup is the king. You can't really charge your clients for backups, but at the same time, when they lose stuff, and they will, and you've got it, you become a hero. And the hero doesn't mean you make money from them there. It means you make money from them in the future when they come back to you because they rebook. trust you. Yeah. Uh, Synology NAS are quite interesting. So I've just just bought another one, actually. What, what, what system are you running? Can't tell you because I can't remember. And also, <laughs> I, um, I'm always told by my IT guys never to tell people exactly what kit we use. Do you, could, you, could you tell me how many terabytes you have? Oh, across the whole system. Yeah. So live system for us is about 180 terabytes okay. live, but we do dual clone every day. So there's another 200 and something terabytes of drive backup. Then there's tape backup. So we use LTO6. Right. Encrypted LTO6 tapes as a secondary. Then on top of that, whenever we finish a project, we double archive it. So most of the time on a sandstorm job, if it's just finished, for the next three months we've got four copies of that entire project. And then when it's when the when the project's done, do you keep it in cold storage or do no, you Yeah, so they go cold. So what we do and I think it's worth all of you guys doing, in the olden days, when digibeta days and stuff, you used to have a master and a clean master, okay, of everything. So that's the output and the clean version is the version without the graphics on it, because they're the two bits you're most likely to need in the future. So you keep those instant access somewhere on your on your Synology and then everything else should go to tape tape backup still like the when you uh, say tape do you mean what external like LTO LTO tape LTO tape have a look it's really really cool when I first got our first red someone phoned me up and he said what data storage system have you got I said oh it's a bunch of hard drives and he said oh no what happens if the hard drives break what are you talking about he said trust me they'll break get LTO and this was at the point where I think it was LTO two or three so quite small tape uh, capacities right and we've stuck with LTO since and it is incredible how does it work LTO is magnetic tape so it writes the data to it so like we use LTO 6 which from memory is two and a half terabytes of tape are they US, the USB in or what, no, what do no you mean? most of them are SAS or something like that right you know um, fiber or SAS connections okay it's very much you know, it's corporate infrastructure IT stuff. You mm. can buy... You use that for live or just for the cold? No, I use it for both. Right. So we have, as I said, all of our live projects, you've got a, we've got a shared fibre RAID system that everybody uses for mm-hmm. working on. That supports 4K footage for all of our editors. So that's 12 workstations live. And then at night, we have a backup system which looks to the changes in that drive and backs all of those changes up to a Synology and backs it up to tape. And then as soon as each tape's full, they go off-site. And then the Synology itself is kept off-site as well. So it's just going... Interesting, okay. So you've got a pure off-site and a semi-off-site and a live project. And then once the project is done, we take it off of the fibre braid, because it's getting in the way, basically, and then we put it to two tapes, one that lives on-site, one that lives off-site. And then that is where you know, 10 years' time or two months' time, whatever it is, clients can call it back and we'll just pull it back off the tape. Crazy. It's worth doing. Yeah. And actually... I'll look into it. 
Another thing that's a good tip, we were talking about expensive kit and what's worth buying. With corporate infrastructure stuff, buy it secondhand. Okay. It's so cheap. It's so, so cheap. And try and find yourself de- decent IT who really understand filmmaking because IT and filmmaking don't go hand in hand. And so when somebody recommends you a bit of kit, they normally recommend it because it's the latest and greatest, but does it actually do what you want for video? A lot of the time it just doesn't. Yeah. So you can look around and find, for example, a lot of our technology is based around a thing called XSAN, which was the Apple um, server system. It's discontinued, it's long gone. It's really good though, really, really good. Uh, Very, very reliable. Um, so we still run a lot of it. And what do you what what do you guys use for Postman? These do you almost all Adobe now? So like in the olden days when we started off, it was basically Flame and Smoke, which were made by a company called Discrete. Really expensive, um, great bits of software, and then they made that suitable for Mac, and we started using it on Mac. And then in about 2012, Adobe released uh, CS6, Creative Suite Six. And it was the first time when I turned on Adobe software and said, "Oh wow! Like this is, this is it! Like they've done almost everything I was expecting from an Avid." And After Effects is now basically doing what we can do on a Flame. So suddenly they've got a tool set that's brilliant. And to me, and I, I stand by this actually, CS6 was the moment where I thought, "I don't know how they're going to get better than that." And every update that Adobe have done since then isn't really an improvement it's a sort of sidestep to you know for example i used i had to use the 2022 premiere last week on a job it's terrible i mean they just made it look like an avid they instead sort of made it quicker right? it's so mm. slow and clunky and just like and i haven't really got time for that mm-hmm. i just want a machine that's really stable and works yeah and works um and we are in a very interesting time at the moment because we're segueing back towards windows at the moment which is very surreal like every, the most powerful machines at the moment are Windows based. It's crazy. Is that what you're on? No, absolutely not. Are no, you? no, we're still almost entirely Mac based. Is that iMacs? No, most of them are Mac Pros. So we've, and this is where we're going with this Windows conversation, a lot of our edit suites are hyped up, souped up Mac Pros. So the 2012 Mac Pros with more RAM, bigger, um, bigger CPUs, and SSD drives which makes them super duper quick. Problem is, Mac are starting to work those machines out now. So OS, you know, the latest OSs don't work on those machines. So it sort of puts us in a tricky situation. We're we're currently looking at a few different scenarios for future-proofing that. Apple, you're going to stick with Apple? Well, I'd love to stick with Apple, but I'm not seeing a... Solution. Not really, at the moment. We've just bought a bunch more of their laptops the new ones with the M1 processors in, but they haven't turned up yet, so I can't tell you how good they are. They've been on order for a while. Uh, so who knows where we'll go on that side of things. Um, but, you know, I've been I've been in post-production now since the late 90s, and it sort of goes in waves. So, And by waves, I mean there was... When I was started, everything was on a thing called an SGI. So if you look this up, look up SGI Octane, and SGI Octane 2, they were like the absolute dog's bollocks of edit suites. So all the flames and stuff were on these systems. Right. Incredible. So powerful. And then everything after that seemed to be less powerful than these machines. But it was it sort of went very, very Windows for a bit. And everybody started going Windows. And then the Mac Pros appeared. And then everyone went Apple. 
and there's a whole back catalogue of information if you look at the Microsoft Monopoly court cases check it out it's good fun actually but essentially Apple used and had to were given a lot of money by Microsoft for quite a long period of time um, which allowed them to develop the Mac Pro and allowed them to develop the iPhone and um, obviously they're now very much into that sort of tech and they've kind of moved away from computers sadly which is why Windows is starting to come back a bit um, but anyway I digress I think fundamentally Windows or Mac the, the important bit for any of us should be what's the best tool um, and making sure the tool is stable making sure the tool does the job properly for you but it's also fast you know there's mm. nothing worse than sitting around and waiting for stuff yeah and you'll find as time goes along especially in your post stuff that the stuff that speeds up post isn't about having the best machine it's about working practices you know, even just simple stuff like making sure stuff's named properly and that you're going to the right codecs at the right points and everything else. Try even boring stuff like not mixing codecs on timelines if you can avoid it. it makes a heck of a difference to your workflow. What, when you're up against it, that's the stuff that makes a difference. What turns you off about going to Windows? Because Windows is really slow. The operating system is really, really slow. You know, we've got a very, very powerful machine with a bunch of NVIDIA 3090 cards in it, which we use for Unreal Engine, which is Windows-based. Um, and it is ballistically fast, but it takes so long just to turn the machine on, and I don't really have time for that. You know, um, you think in the modern world, why is a Windows machine taking so long? Yeah, that's all. Um, it, there are processing things that happen in Windows that just seem to be too slow for me. That's 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 what I'm going with. You that's know? a fair answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do. It sounds silly. I really hope that Windows gets past that because actually, a lot of their machines are a lot more flexible in theory aren't they than a Mac you know a Mac is kind of out of the box and there's only a certain amount of things you can change about the Mac whereas with Windows in theory you could change a lot more yeah but for stability and affordability and performance over time we've been on Mac for sort of 15 years now speaking about things that you can um, take apart fully yeah put back together defenders yeah <laughs> well, well you say that <laughs> my my current defender i don't think i want to take to pieces yeah i recently sent an email around to the team about um someone had a like, breakdown at work so i sent a message around saying you know guys always check your oil always check your tire pressures and stuff you know we're out in the countryside so you should do that kind of thing and i suddenly realized i've probably never done that with my new car so i was um i was kind of giving people poor advice there and yeah i don't think i'd actually looked under the hood of the new defender but yeah, going back to Defenders, I mean, I've always always had Land Rovers. Uh, I think I've had 23 Land Rovers. 23? Wow. Mm. Might be 24 now. Uh, I love Land Rovers. I kind of love what they stand for, really. You know, they go anywhere. Right? They go anywhere, you know. And I think, you know, that's probably me as a person is having that ability to be able to go where I want, when I want, is, is important to me. And to do it safely, you know, I've got two kids. I want to know that they're safe. And I feel very very safe in gosh, sounds like a right Land Rover sales video doesn't it <laughs> because actually you know I mean let's let's bring Land Rover down a peg or two in reality they are very good cars but they are horrendously expensive very very difficult to fix now um, but is the new Defender a good car uh, I didn't like it when it first came out visually but driving it great car did it change your mind almost in- instantly yeah, yeah yeah it did yeah um, because you've kind of got the drive sort of a Range Rover really but with the sturdiness and grunt of a Defender have you taken the new one off road oh yeah and uh, it's absolutely ballistic 
it is very very good off-road is it one of the best cars off-road i don't know i don't think i've pushed it hard enough but i do remember being in my old defender on a 4x4 course and a range rover drove past me with normal road tires just as if nothing had ever gone on and just like went over this hill down through this sort of like stream didn't seem to slip a you know didn't miss a beat and my old defender was struggling and obviously the Defender's known as the kind of go-anywhere machine, but actually the realities of it is it's a 60-year-old design, and yeah. Land Rover have improved upon it a lot. Um, and so that's the kind of realities of it. You know, does that mean I wouldn't have the old Defender? Absolutely not. The old Defenders are great, aren't they? You know? mm. um, it's the look, though, isn't it? It's the look. And, and the feel, the smell. The feel, you know, they, they're very utility, aren't they? Um, but at the moment, they're worth so much money. If you've got one, sell it, get yourself a van or something, and wait for the value to drop down again. In, know, <laughs> That's literally what we down. did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, you see what I mean? Um, you've got to get to a point in life, again, it goes back to that thing we talked about with the Lexus, and same as we talked about with the Apple Max, is you've got, you need reliability, yeah? Yeah. And actually, that's where, that's why I had to get the new Defender, because, you know, last year especially, didn't really use a car, came out of lockdown, and you just think, actually, I just want a car that I can rely on. Mm. No worry. We, we found with um, the Defender we bought, we bought it in uh, February 2018. Yeah. And we checked. 85, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's five speed. We didn't really know what we were doing. We had a good year. We thought, let's just buy a Defender. We both like loved the car. Yeah. It was, it was matte black. Like you, you, you saw it. Yeah, it was a really, really cool car. And it helped us build the brand with Otter. Because it's a, it's a bit of a showstopper when you turn up on shoot and stuff. Absolutely. And um, the first year we loved it, the second year we loved it, and then the third year, I, me- I remember in December just gone, we spent nearly three grand on rust proofing and getting new cross members. And I was saying to Dan, like, mate, you know, if you split this three grand across a year, that's a brand new lease on a van. Like, and, and, and then, you know, you're charging a client 45 PML, and there's, there's not much profit on that, if at all. And then it's like you you got you driving up to Essex. It's the most mo- most of it is motorway, and it's like this is only five speed. It's horrible to drive. I mean, these are wise words actually. And and again, in business, there's a very good reason why we all rely on vans and trucks and not defenders to move all of our stuff. Around. <laughs> you know, um, the defender is a weekend bit of fun, really. Yeah. Realistically, yeah, they're not comfortable to drive long distance. They're very very noisy, and as you say, they eat fuel. Um, so yeah, go for a van every time. And um, I don't think they'll let you down. I mean, we've got a lot of vans at work, and you know, long wheelbase vans, dead cheap to run. You know, most of them have got two litre or two point two litre engines. Yeah, they're ULEs friendly for getting in and out of London. Okay, they don't fit in any car parks, which is a bit of an issue. Where do you park your vans in car parks in London? Extreme difficulty. You have to look around a lot. It's just shopping. Got, then. We have got some smaller vehicles that will fit into car parks, but the reality of it is that actually, for the amount of kit we carry. It's not Long wheelbase is the minimum we can take around. So all the time we're moving like eighteen-ton trucks to get kit around. Really, we, was, we when we recently got the van, we originally were going to have a roof bar and a tube to put like a two-point-seven meter photography paper on it. We thought, how often are we actually going to use that? So we scrapped the idea, yep. kept the van Thank as it. It was yeah. a Ford, it's a Ford Transit Custom L one H one, so it's like nineteen fifty tall, and. Um, well, you went to London recently, didn't you, for a shoot? And it was like we were looking around just trying to find something that you could fit under two metres. And- yeah, even when it says, like, you can fit 1.9 metres in here or, like, two metres, I'm, like, getting to it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is it's really nerve-wracking. Tight. It's really tight. I did um, – I was doing a lovely shoot in Fitzrovia a few years ago. Really nice shoot. And we took uh, one of the bands. And, yeah, I started going to the car park. We 
put aside for it. One of the low-level vans. They just started catching as soon as I went near the ramps. So really? Back that back out. And yeah, really on the you know the sign, it was a slightly different measurement. I phoned up someone recently, so I was shooting the Barbican, and uh, I said to them, this car park you put in, are you sure it's going to fit? And they said, well, if it makes you feel any better, there's um, a couple of transit vans in there, and I'm pretty sure the same height as you. I thought, fine, and it fitted. Uh, but yeah, you've got to you've got to measure it up, really, haven't you? Defenders, as I found out um, a few years back, don't fit in many car parks. Nah, and I yeah, had that quite, was the same, wasn't it? Quite a nasty it's worse. surprise. My my roof on my Defender never quite looked the same. You scratched it big time. Yeah, 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 yeah. really, really badly. Um, I took ours into the Brunel car park in Swindon um, completely because I've never completely oblivious that cars have height. At the time, you know, <laughs> up until statement. I've just always just driven cars. I, I never had to worry. It was a Lamborghini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just never, never had to worry about it. And all of a sudden, I'm in the car park, thinking, "Hold on, Ben, you're in a Defender here, and it's like deep tread snow tires. You're probably at 2.3 meters." And I got out of the car, looked up, and I don't know how. I, do you remember I told you I, was, I nearly had a panic attack? I was like, "I don't know how I'm going to get this out." And I thought I could just see the headline like "Business Owner Locks Defender in Concrete Car Park," but I managed to get out. But you hit, I hit the thing on the way out, and I remember thinking, "Never again." Never you again. Just pay attention after that, don't you? Yeah. The same as you can take that principle across everything you do in business. A lot of people say to me, "Oh, you know, you seem really relaxed." I said, "Well, I am relaxed because the reality is things do go wrong. Preparation is key mm-hmm. for everything you do in business, and um, you can't. You, you fundamentally, I'm here through a, a huge list of mistakes. I wrote a book about all my mistakes. We called the Director's Cut." I wrote it when I was about 27. I wrote it in two days. <laughs> wow. Um, because I felt so strongly that I'd made so many screw-ups in business that if I just wrote them down into a book, it might help any like somebody, anybody in business themselves. We'll have to read that then. I'll, yeah, I'll get you a copy, yeah. I have to say, I'm not sure how good it was. I was 27. I was very pleased with my work. I really was. And I've reread it since, and I'm still I'm proud of it, yeah. considering where I was in my life. But I've never really had that many people come back to me and go, that's the book that changed my you know, business career. <laughs> I've never had that. I've had some people, you know, say, oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, that's not quite the intention. Um, I've, I've got this, what I'd call the sketches for two other books, but whether I'll ever get time to make them or not. Both business books. Mm-hmm. So I think you, it's amazing how many mistakes you have to make in business because there's no real set of rules for business, no. really, if you no. think about it. Um, but one thing that is interesting is whoever you are, all businesses are going through the same thing, every single one. It's really surreal. Um, some businesses obviously will start with a guy who knows a need and has got investors and it kind of flies and it looks great. But then when you actually look at it, you kind of go, well, actually, they you know, started with five, ten million of funding. Mm. Uh, and other people will start and it's them by themselves and they don't really make any money for ages, but actually the cost was quite low. But they'll still have the same issues to go through. And the same boring stuff with you know tax returns and VAT and whether you should spend on kit and what have you, and how do you employ people? Employment is probably the toughest. Yeah. The toughest bit of business, I think. Um, and then how do you you know how do you maintain clients? You know, because realistically, I would say the only way I've really maintained clients is to just put in huge, huge amounts of hours, never let them down. Really, you know, I think that's probably the important bit in business just always done what they've asked yeah no 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 it's not about doing what they ask it's about delivering yeah it's about delivering because sometimes you know we're working on a job at the moment where the client's brief to us made sense but it wasn't that interesting so we pitched something back to them and they went that's great we'll go with that and then we'll produce it and it will look lovely 
and they'll have got something more than they were expecting and we'll have made a nice film. Um, you know, you're not going to get that from every client, but fundamentally, as long as you're there delivering what you say you're going to deliver and you do it on time, you do it on budget, you should always, unless you really have to, don't go back to clients asking for more money. Unless, the, you know, the, if the parameters change, then it's a different yeah. game. Yeah. And you've got to set those rules out quite early. Again, one of mm-hmm. the big things when you're in the early stages of business is don't be forceful with it, but try and set the goal and make sure everybody knows what that is. Normally written down. Say normally. Probably always written down. On an email somewhere, yeah. On an email, we've got a really cool like, set of production documents that we issue at the beginning of jobs, which you know, part of the quote says, this is what we're expecting to deliver, these are the key dates. Here's a breakdown of all the bits that are involved. If that changes, we'll probably need to requote. It's all based on delivering on that day, because that, again, makes a difference, doesn't it? You know, sometimes the most expensive jobs are the ones that have a really long window of time. You know, I, re- I love these sort of, we've got three weeks to make a film. Great, because I know in three weeks' time we have to deliver something really, really cool. Whereas if it's sort of, oh, it doesn't really matter, we do it in two years. They could still be talking to you in two years about edit changes they want, because they've got the time. Uh, so that's the first part of it, and then the production document gets into the detail of you know what we do on exactly what day, and why, and who's involved, and what are the cast, what are the storyboards, all that kind of thing. Because you can quite quickly see where the gaps are. I've got, I think I've got about a thousand questions more for you, Tom, but oh, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of time. Mm. But we'll finish on the, the theme podcast question. Please. Dan. Um, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> the... I forgot what it was. <laughs> Go on. Um, so we want to ask you what, Tell us about a window that you've looked for. It could be metaphorically or physically. Uh, a positive window, a window that you've learned lessons through. A window. It has to be a window. Well, I think that is the Sandstorm logo, isn't it? If you think about it. The, wind, the, the Sandstorm logo is a window looking out onto a desert. And what that represents to me is safety. Because you're behind the window looking out onto heat and uncertain times and, you know, sandstorms <laughs> that was the whole thing of that sandstorms outside we're inside in the safe in the calm so that's the window that sort of defines me really and um that kind of ethic of not ethics but just that fundamental belief of making things that that improve or make things better for people okay albeit it's films it's not that you know it's not gonna change the world or you know end poverty or something but it is about making a difference fundamentally mm. love it well thanks so much for coming on yeah. thanks, thanks guys really enjoyable great to like actually have a deep chat and uh, learn more about you yeah from, uh, well there yeah. you go enjoyable same for you guys thank you very much mm.